Greetings and welcome to the 5 by your favorite source for rapid-fire board game reviews. We have an excellent show for you this week with Luke trading on his mastery in the Guilds of London, John broadcasts the news about the networks, I'm pretty hooked on Freshwater Fly, and Ruth is on the lookout for something special in Mercado. But first, Sarah tells us if things add up in Lovelace and Babbage. I love playing games, and I work as a programmer. And a game about Ada Lovelace and Charles Babbage? That is like catnip to me. All the more because it's designed by Scott Alms, who did Tiny Epic Galaxies, one of my favorite small box games. Given the subject matter, there was no question about my backing Lovelace and Babbage when Artana Games launched it on Kickstarter last year. Lovelace and Babbage was just released. My copy arrived last week. Player characters are figures from the early days of computing, like Ada Lovelace and Charles Babbage. There's also a deck of influence cards featuring important figures from the 19th century, like Mary Shelley and Michael Faraday. The game features wonderful art by Heiko Gunter and Quan Chai Moria, with cheerful, colorful illustrations of the characters. I really appreciate the effort they put into gender diversity in the characters. It adds a lot to the game's appeal. Though I wish they'd put similar effort into racial diversity. They could have included inventors like George Washington Carver, or writers like Frederick Douglass and Phyllis Wheatley. As you might guess from the title, Lovelace and Babbage features the analytical engine, the mechanical computer designed by Charles Babbage in the 19th century. The game board resembles an analytical engine. The wheels on the engine show different mathematical operations, and players use them to do simple math. Add 10, divide by 2, subtract 1. In four timed rounds, players race to calculate specific numbers to gain points and abilities that can be used on future turns. You can only do five operations per round, and you want to hit as many numbers as you can. So the goal is for your math to be as efficient as possible to score more points. Or maybe your goal is to end as quickly as possible, because the sand timer starts when the first player finishes, and you may prevent another player from pulling off an amazing calculation by taking away the time they need. In the first round of Lovelace and Babbage, the calculations are all very simple, but each round new wheels are added, giving players new, more difficult calculations, like add or subtract 39 or 18. And this is where Lovelace and Babbage gets interesting. You get bonus points for using the additional calculations, but they are so much more complex. If you had unlimited time to think about it, anyone could pull off a perfect sequence, reaching as many numbers as possible and racking up bonus points. But you only have a couple of minutes. And do you go for brute force, using simple calculations to get to as many target numbers as you can? Or do you try to do something elegant, hoping you have time to work out an amazing sequence that has you leaping from target to target, hitting a mark every time? These decisions, and the math itself, are what make Lovelace and Babbage a brain-burning challenge, despite taking only half an hour to play. As much as I enjoy Lovelace and Babbage, I do have some caveats. For starters, the rulebook is hard to use, both in the literal sense of tiny type that's difficult to read, and it just isn't clearly written. For one thing, many of the example calculations in the rulebook are wrong. That doesn't affect gameplay, but it's disappointing in a game that's all about math. More concerning is the lack of clarity in the rules themselves. Questions have come up in every game I've played, especially about how to interpret card abilities, that the rulebook simply didn't answer. There's even a section on the card abilities that doesn't explain how they work. It offered sort of in-game backstories for the abilities, but no rules clarification. Very frustrating. If you aren't sure how a card applies to a specific situation, you're on your own. Now, Lovelace and Babbage is a fairly straightforward game, so the rulebook isn't too much of an obstacle. You'll figure it out, and if your group isn't congenial enough to agree on a fair way to implement a rule, you have bigger problems than confusing rules. 
But my larger issue with Lovelace and Babbage is how completely it relies on the ability to do math quickly. This game is all about math, not just math, but complex arithmetic. I like math, and so do the people in my game group. And still, at a recent game where all four players were programmers, we all found Lovelace and Babbage a real challenge. This is a fairly narrow skill, and differences in ability make a huge difference, not just in the outcome, but whether Lovelace and Babbage will be an enjoyable game. I once played a game of Catacombs and Castles, a disc-flicking game, in which we found out after we began that one of the players was an accomplished pool player. You can imagine how lopsided that game would be, and you'd be right. I was on the Pool Sharks team, and even though we won, it made the game less fun for everyone. That kind of disparity is baked into Lovelace and Babbage. Some people are just way better at doing math in their head than others, and the people who are good at it are going to clobber the ones who are fair to middling. You could greatly reduce the pressure by getting rid of the sand timer, maybe setting a longer time limit if you're concerned about AP. And with or without the timer, Lovelace and Babbage would be a great game for older kids who need a fun way to practice arithmetic. But I think ultimately, Lovelace and Babbage is a game that some people are going to take to and love. And for others, it's going to feel like that dream where you have to take an exam in a class you didn't know you were enrolled in. For me, it's the former. I find Lovelace and Babbage a whole lot of fun. And I only regret that there isn't a solo mode. But should you get Lovelace and Babbage? If you've listened thus far, I think you already know the answer. And that's Lovelace and Babbage. My name is Sarah. Look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Part of me wants to say I'm not a big fan of area control games. That sliver of my mind always equates area control with big, bombastic, dudes-on-a-map affairs like Kemet or Rising Sun. I'm definitely still not a fan of war games, much to the dismay of my friends Mike and Django, but even the midweight games like Blood Rage and Cyclades just don't appeal to me. But when I look at my collection, I have several area control games I absolutely love. Some of my favorites include Small World, El Grande, Mexica, and Ethnos. Admittedly, these games fall into the middle of the weight spectrum and don't really involve direct conflict in the traditional beat-em-up sense, except for maybe Small World, but they're area control nonetheless. An area majority is a subtype of area control, don't at me. I think it's time I retire the idea that I'm not an area control guy. I love the games I listed, and I don't think anyone would argue that games like Small World or El Grande aren't about as pure as area control gets. And a couple years ago, I added yet another amazing area control game to my list of favorites, Tony Boydell's Guilds of London. Although it plays as area control, thematically, that struggle represents candidates for London mayor jockeying for influence and attempting to install their supporters as guildmasters. The board is modular, initially made up of a two-tile guild house and ten randomized guild tiles, and in three- to four-player games, new tiles are added to the board in two intervals during play. The random layout keeps each play's strategy fresh enough to help close the skill gap present in many fixed map area control games. Guilds of London's Foundation is a deck of fantastic multi-use cards. Each player starts with six, and on their turn they can play as many as they like. With each card, a player can hire a liveryman into the guildhouse, move a liveryman to any tile matching the color of the played card, or use a card's special ability. Special abilities are wide and varied, and the cost for using one is paid by discarding other cards Race for the Galaxy style. The cost of special abilities is listed in coins, and in one of my favorite design elements in a long time, every card has a coin on its back indicating that it can be used for payment. Each tile has a number in the upper left corner, which determines when that tile will be evaluated for control. When the number of pieces on that tile meets or exceeds that number, it will resolve at the end of the round. 
but all tiles resolve in a specific order, which means resolving one tile could potentially allow you to move liverymen to other tiles in the same round, changing your control or allowing a tile to resolve which otherwise wouldn't have. A neutral piece called the beetle also moves around the board, landing on the lowest numbered tile in play and also counts toward a tile's occupancy. For the most part, straight majority determines who wins a tile. However, every time a tile resolves, there is a quote-unquote negotiation phase at the beginning, where players can play neutral liverymen they've acquired to replace the liverymen of other players, thus changing the standings on the tile. It seems, by description, like it should be a gnarly take-that element, but most of the time you can see it coming, and in practice, it doesn't feel as in-your-face as it seems in theory. The winner of any control contest gets the bonus and ability printed on the tile, and second place in majority gets whatever's on a randomized second place marker. This setup randomization sometimes means second place is better than first, which sometimes means you're specifically aiming for second place. I've actually used a neutral liveryman to remove my own piece from a tile to ensure I was the sole beneficiary of the second place reward. Once control of a tile is determined, it flips, and the player who won control places one of their liverymen on the flipped tile as guildmaster. That tile now helps break ties for that player in all adjacent contests, and may be worth extra victory points at the end of the game. What surprised me most about Guilds of London is how smooth it plays for how fiddly it seems. All the randomization, the piles of meeples, the multi-use cards, the growth phases, and the plantation space, another place to jockey for control, but not specifically a guild, would lead you to believe it's a bit haphazard. But after my first game, the whole thing just fell into place and presented me with a decision space unlike any other I'd encountered, especially for a midweight area control game. When anyone asks me to list my most underrated games, Guilds of London always floats to the top. Tasty Minstrel released it without much fanfare back in 2016, and I can kind of understand why. That year was, frankly, ridiculous in terms of hype. Scythe, the hypiest of hypes released that year, followed closely by Mechs vs. Minions. But even after those two, 2016 gave us Clank, Sushi Go Party, Inish, Secret Hitler, Captain Sonar, Patchwork, Great Western Trail, and Terraforming Friggin' Mars. The downside of a year like that is that an unassuming yet phenomenal game like Guilds of London just gets lost in the hype shuffle. The upside, at least for gamers if not for TMG, is that you can regularly find Guilds of London on the cheap. At the time of this recording, you can get it on Amazon for a measly $19, and it regularly shows up in sales on CSI and Miniature Market for $15, which is just massively absurd. There is just no barrier to entry here. If you like area control, go get Guilds of London. My name is Luke, and you can find me customizing my games on BGG and Instagram at PixelArtMeeple, or on my website PixelArtMeeple.com. Thanks for listening, and happy gaming! Like most people my age, I grew up on a steady diet of Sesame Street, Saturday morning cartoons, and reruns. And looking back on the board games of my youth, most of them were based on TV shows I only knew from reruns and cartoons. Most of them were pretty terrible. Even now when I see those distinctive, long, colorful boxes at thrift stores, I have an instant distrust for both the completeness of the contents within and the quality of gameplay. So last year when I was given a copy of the networks as a birthday present, I was a bit intrigued. After all, while there are tons of games about television shows, there aren't that many about the television industry itself. The Networks is designed by Gil Hova and is published by Formal Ferret Games, featuring art by Heiko Gunther and Travis Kinchy. It was successfully kickstarted in 2016, but is currently available at retail. 
In the networks, players are network executives on a mission to grow their local small public access stations by filling their primetime slots with outrageous shows, stars, and ads over the course of five rounds or seasons if you prefer to use the game's thematically appropriate term. Whoever has the most viewers at the end of the game wins. So how do you go about creating popular victory point generating shows? Well, in the networks, you take turns drafting cards from the currently available selection of shows, stars, and ads. To develop shows, players may purchase a show card from the offer and move it onto their 8, 9, or 10 p.m. slot. Shows can only be developed and put on the air if the player already has the required star or advertisement cards in their green room, which is a kind of waiting room limbo where stars and commercial tapes are stored, I guess? Placing the show in its preferred time slot during its initial season will generate more viewers during the scoring phase. Some shows have impressive debuts, while others are late bloomers and get their highest ratings during their sophomore seasons. But in general, most shows' viewerships will decline during later seasons. Cards in the networks are cleverly designed so that when they are horizontally laid out, the right-hand edges show you relevant information such as how many viewers that show will generate during each of its four seasons and how much they cost to keep on air from season to season. Some stars and ads have their own requirements and demand to be placed on certain types of shows or time slots. If you can't meet these requirements when you develop the show, you'll have to rotate the card, giving you a worse return on your investment. After everyone is done taking actions, the season ends and all players tally up their income and expenses and score their victory points. Repeat this over the course of five seasons and then score your lineup one final time without taking any actions. And that's it. That's the whole game. Wait, don't touch that dial. There's a lot more to say about the networks. Running a television network, even a fledgling public access one, is expensive. Television show cards cost money to develop, stars need to get paid, and some shows cost money to stay on the air from season to season. Money is tight in the networks and there are only a few surefire ways to add to your income. This lack of funding will leave you scrambling to put together a PBS-style telethon to raise more funds. I kid, but the game can feel like you're always looking at your little pile of million dollar tokens, wondering just how you'll be able to develop your next prime time hit. The networks creates a really tense decision space where you might know which show in the offer will get you the most viewers, but you just don't have the money or the star or the ad you need to get it on the air. And getting everything lined up most likely means that before you know it, someone else will have taken that card. It's definitely the type of game that will have players sighing and groaning when that card they wanted gets drafted by someone else. And since cards are only replenished during the setup for the next season, you need to really plan efficiently or be able to change your plans at the drop of a hat. While most of the tension in the game comes from drafting cards, the networks includes a fourth type of draftable card that offers players special powers and lets them break the rules a little bit. A few of these cards are labeled as interactive and can be added to games with three or more players providing a take that element. But since this is a game where you and your table mates are inadvertently and sometimes advertently undermining each other through card drafting, you might want to leave them out. After all, spending an action to take a card that will force your table mates to rotate one of their cards to a less profitable side seems a bit unnecessary when you're potentially missing out on gaining cards you really want. The network shines as a game that embraces its subject matter with a joyous hug worthy of a sitcom freeze frame ending. The cards in the game are delightful parodies of television staples, actors, and commercials. And while you're thinking about that card you really need but likely won't be able to get, you can also amuse yourself by thinking about pairing up your 9pm action show person of disinterest with that actor that always dies and everything. Or maybe you'll put the public television legend card that is clearly a tribute to Bob Ross on your Doctor Who ripoff, Doctor What. Every time I play the networks, players enjoy creating wacky combinations and sharing them with each other. I mentioned before that you'll hear a lot of disappointed sighs and groans as people draft cards in the networks, 
but you're also going to hear a lot of giggling and chuckling. The Networks by Designer Gilhova is a lighter, medium-weight card drafting game that scales well at all recommended player counts. The art by Travis Kinchy and Heiko Gunther is appropriately kitschy and charming. With its tongue-in-cheek take on television programming and solid gameplay, The Networks is a worthy addition to my own primetime lineup of games. I'm John Gonzalez, and if you need me, I'll be over on the couch making a list of classic TV shows that desperately need a reboot. If I'm not there, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as Book of Nerds. Thanks for listening. I am not a fisher. Sure, some lake fishing back when I was a kid, but let's be frank. Aside from that one smallmouth bass my brother caught that one time, in my opinion, there's not really a lot to enjoy in bluegill and sunfish. But I do have some family who still fish, so in 2017 when Brian Surrey and Bellwether Games released Coldwater Crown, they had my attention. Playing Coldwater Crown, I could definitely feel that fishing vibe. Moving my tokens back and forth from my play area, trying to clear out spaces in my bait box. It's a very rhythmic feel, like casting out my line and reeling it back in, hopefully with a fish on the end. But Coldwater Crown is honestly a little more complex than I was hoping for, given the people I wanted to play it with. The mechanisms are very streamlined, but there's a lot going on visually with a lengthy setup of trophy tokens, bait, and fish cards. Yet, when Dennis from Bellwether asked if I wanted a review copy of Brian's next game in the series, Freshwater Fly, I knew that was one I needed to try. In Freshwater Fly, you are fly fishing this time. And while I've never been fly fishing, the concept was easy to grok. Especially when you're staring at a stream board packed with Dale T. Jones's gorgeous fish and a few rocks. So let's start at the beginning. The game board is placed in front of everyone and filled with fish, weights and points side down, and the hatch tokens are placed on the sliding cardboard pieces at the bottom. Each player takes their player board and starts with whatever color fly they want, usually related to the most common hatch available, and what fish they are trying to catch first. A big old handful of dice are rolled and we start fishing. The dice value control which row you can cast into, so at this point higher die are better, but not always. It just kind of depends on what row you need. If you cast into a row where a hatch token matches your fly, you get to draw a strike card, which gives you a 1 in 4 chance of catching that fish. If you miss, you can spend some finesse points to draw again, otherwise your fly drifts down the stream one row. On the next row, you now gain two strike cards, so it's a 2 in 3 chance. Not bad odds. If you miss again, so long as you aren't already on row 1, you drift again, and congratulations, you've caught a fish. Flip it and place it above your reel with the matching hatch token, and on later turns, you'll take the die value minus the weight of the fish, and you can reel in that fish that number of spaces. Reeling on a fish can be quick or take a few turns. It depends on how big the fish is, which generally correlates to how many points it's worth. Reeling fish in often gains you special bonuses, too. One reel space lets you zero out the fish's weight, which makes future reels more efficient. One lets you gain momentum tiles, which give you one-use bonuses. Another gives you more finesse points. You'll need those to swap out your fly to another color, modify die values, or gain extra strike cards. Once you've landed the fish, it'll give you points, contribute to some set collection bonuses, and hatch tokens will also help with their own set collection bonus. And now that your line is clear, it's time to cast again and catch more fish. The first person to catch seven fish gets a bonus, plus triggers the end of the game after that round. Count up your fish points, your board-specific points, and your general points. Sure, you could just catch small fish to rush the end game, but you'll be missing out on a lot of possible points from the larger fish and the set collection points they allowed for. Points aside, Freshwater Fly feels even more like fishing to me than Coldwater Crown. In Coldwater Crown, you just... caught the fish. Here, they take some time, skill, and patience to reel them in, if you manage to hook one at all. You also have to be strategic in that you may want to cast upstream from the fish you want so that you get more strike cards when you need them. 
but you also must mitigate not catching a fish you don't want in that first row by either casting into a row where the fly doesn't match any of the hatch tokens or casting onto a rock. Casting onto a rock is even better because catching a fish next to a rock gets you that rock card with its abilities. As with real fishing, despite all your preparation, there is a lot of luck involved. I've played with super lucky people who regularly caught fish on their first strike card draw. And I've used all my finesse points to give me a 75% chance that I'll get that one fish I need and watch my fly drift away down to something I couldn't use. Which, for a game this length, was frustrating. There's also complexity to the game because matching the hatch tokens, the drifting fly, the reel, and the special abilities on the momentum tiles, finesse abilities, and rock cards is a lot to keep track of. The setup is quick though, but the teach can run longer than expected as it sinks in what you'll be doing. The game also feels a little long for me. Again, like fly fishing, it can overstay its welcome a little. More than once at a two and four player game, we were at the fifth fish and thinking the game should end then, instead of dragging out to the seventh fish. Still, I have friends who didn't feel that way at all, so I guess your mileage may vary. The biggest and best surprise for me was how Freshwater Fly plays as a solo game. There's a solo campaign where you compete against the Silent Angler, fishing a series of streams and upgrading your abilities as you go. As a solo game, Freshwater Fly moves at a near blazing clip with a smooth system that moves fish into your opponent's pile, but still gives you some control over what you leave for them, making for some crunchy trade-offs. So that's Freshwater Fly. In the end, I feel it's still a little too complicated for my fishing family, but I'm glad I got to play it. It's a rare, unique-feeling game that fishing fans and medium-weight Eurogamers should try, especially solo gamers looking for something a little different. Until next time, I'll only be applying my fishing skills at the local sushi bar, but you're welcome to reach out to me on Twitter, at Mike Risley. Early in 2019, I made a trip to Salt Lake City in order to meet up with Mike and attend SaltCon for the first time. While there, I was introduced to a number of games, including Mercado, a game I somehow wasn't aware of despite its designer's pedigree. You see, it's by Rudger Darn, designer of such games as Las Vegas, Goa, Alhambra, Istanbul, Karuba. Well, you get the idea. Published in 2018 by Cosmos, this 2-4 player game was my surprise hit of the con, and I was thrilled to later receive a copy for my birthday. Mercado doesn't fit into an easy category. It's a bag-building race game? A non-auction but bidding-adjacent game? Essentially, players are trying to be the first to earn enough prestige to loop around the score track and pass the start space. They earn prestige in a matter used throughout history, by buying expensive things to show off how important they are. Picture the lavish collections in many stately homes. So players start each turn by drawing five coins of various colors from their purse and determining which items in the market they like to buy, placing coins on their designated side of the tile. If a player manages to get the full cost of an item on their side of the item tile, then they receive it and any benefits it brings, while anyone else with coins by that item puts their money back into their purse. The coins the player had successfully spent to buy the item instead go on to their character portrait, where they'll stay until the player decides to take a turn to refill their purse rather than shopping. Mercado's gameplay is simple enough, but there are interesting details at each stage of a turn. For one thing, some of the coins in your bag are counterfeit, so merchants won't accept them. When drawn from your purse, these just go onto your character portrait, reducing the amount of money you have to spend that turn. And then there's the items you're actually buying. These come in two types, valuable things that give points, and perfumes that tend to provide other benefits instead. When purchasing an item, there can be special abilities that resolve, perhaps letting you remove a counterfeit 
counterfeit coin from your purse, or even letting you give counterfeit coins to everybody else. Picking the right items can help you adjust your bag contents, but focusing too much on this will put you behind on points. And since the game is a race, that can be dangerous. Some item rewards also provide wax seals or privilege tokens. Seals are also given to players who were beat out on items they were trying to purchase, and these are simply spent in your turn to draw extra coins. Privilege tokens provide points and occasionally other benefits. Interestingly, they can be cashed in immediately, on any future turn, or even saved for once the game ends in an effort to pass the leader. One reason to save them is that you don't always want to move a number of points on the score track. You see, many spaces of the track have icons on them, and when landing in a space, you might end up getting something like a wild coin, getting a fake coin, or even getting more points propelling you further forward. So if the spot turning in a privilege token would put you on isn't great, or if it's occupied by someone else, which prevents you getting the benefit, well, you might want to wait and turn it in at a more auspicious time. Another notable feature of the score track is not only is it double-sided with a trickier track on the back of the board, but the start-slash-finish space is actually marked by a token, so you can change where it appears, changing up the exact breakdown of icons, as well as what spaces players have to traverse in early versus late game. It's a very small thing, but I like the variability. Mercado's components are wonderful, with really nice thick punchboard tiles and fantastic art. Each player has a double-sided token showing their player color, with male and female coded character portraits for each. And as I said, the art from German studio Fiori GmbH is wonderful, however, the characters are very white. The game even includes double-sided tags with the player art attached to each draw bag marking ownership. It's an entirely unnecessary touch, but it just adds something extra to the whole experience. Really, apart from the racial breakdown, my only complaint production-wise is that the wax seals are so tiny they can be tough to pick up. It's a niggle for me, but it could be more of an issue for players with manual dexterity issues. Mercado didn't seem to generate much in the way of buzz when it was released, an all-too-common statement given that thousands of new games are released every year. But it's one I would recommend checking out if you're looking for a game full of interesting decisions peppered with a touch of Screw Your Neighbor that plays in just 30 minutes, fast enough to make the times you gave everyone fake currency a little less painful. Give it a shot and let me know what you think. For the 5 by this has been Roof. When I'm not shopping for fancy frippery, you can find me on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the 5 by the all-stuff, no-fluff, and just long-enough board gaming podcast. Follow us on Twitter at 5 by Games. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash 5 by Games. Join our BGG guild, number 2810. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, or visit our website at 5bygames.com. From all of us at The 5 By, thanks for listening. The 5 By is part of the Inside Voices Network. Find more of our great content, like Great Way Games, at insidevoicesnetwork.com.